So we've been looking to the themes of eschatology, and this is our fifth week. Um, we do have a handout, and so I'll ask for that to be distributed. Um, before we get to uh, some of the questions I have there by way of review and whatnot, uh, just a little word on where we've been and um, uh, a shorter word on where we're going. But um, as we've thought about the theme of eschatology, the first week we just generally introduced it and we asked uh, at least a little bit of questions as to what it is and why it's valuable to be studying. And then we look to the importance of um, having the Old Testament as a backdrop to how we understand uh, the New Testament in terms of prophecy. Uh, we further expanded that then in terms of how that how that's a good way to understand all of the Bible and all of interpretation. We, uh, we study the Bible in light of the Bible. We understand the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. We... Um, then, uh, because of uh, really uh, Dr. Bowder's nick of time, which I think there's still a few copies back in the uh, foyer on the on the uh, counter, but uh, because of that nick of time and a recent event in the life of a, a young teenager, um, we thought about how that eschatology um, affects even personal. Uh, our personal hope for the future. Um, and so in these uh, weeks and with a number of the uh, coming weeks, uh, what we're doing is we're looking at different themes that are really high level, big picture themes related to eschatology. They aren't all related to eschatology in the same way. Um, in, in the weeks ahead, when I get back, we'll look to the theme of uh, God's sovereignty and how God's sovereignty is fundamental to uh, our assurances in eschatology. Uh, we've looked at this idea of hope. We looked at uh, how the Old Testament and New Testament work together, which is in the realm of hermeneutics and, and Bible interpretation. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pull together various and s- some very diverse themes that are very important themes related to uh, eschatology. Some of them are theological themes related to eschatology. Some of them are biblical themes related to eschatology. Um, we're going we're gonna to look at some of those larger concerns as we think about uh, eschatology. But two weeks ago, we had started looking at Daniel 9 um, as one particular instance of how the Old Testament might be helpful for understanding the New Testament and how uh, an Old Testament uh, passage might be helpful for understanding uh, how we ought to think about interpreting prophecy. And as we looked at that uh, passage, what I'm really doing is I'm tying in uh, a major uh, underpinning of how you would go uh, and begin a study of, um, of eschatology. That is the theology of hermeneutics or what kind of interpretational understanding you bring to the Bible when you go to understand eschatology. 
And so what we're really understanding, what we're really looking at is, um, in, in broad strokes, we're looking at what is dispensationalism, or, or at least some of the uh, relations of dispensationalism to how we understand the scriptures. And so the first question, and again, this is not uh, obviously on the topic of eschatology directly, but it is so foundational to how we understand uh, eschatology. If we don't ground our eschatology in a dis- dispensational understanding of Scripture, I think what will happen is we'll end up in wrong places in our conclusions with what we should understand about eschatology. Um, so I had mentioned um, at least at least once, but how might one... Uh, how might one identify someone who is a dispensationalist? How might one be able to know if someone else is a dispensationalist? There's a really easy, um, big picture, a really easy way to know if somebody's a dispensationalist. Yes, Paul. Yes. So the understanding of Israel and the church is not... Um, the church replaces Israel or the church is Israel. Um, uh, some spiritualization of the understanding of prophecy. So prophecy being given to Israel in the Old Testament, the promises of peace, the promises of the coming and the reestablishment of uh, Jerusalem and Israel as a nation. Um, those foundational uh, physical realities, historical realities, which will happen one day. Um, people who aren't dispensationalist will say, uh, and there's many of them, and th- this is why it's helpful to understand this in relation to eschatology. If you come to the theme of eschatology, um, you will find lots of people who are Bible believers, who are uh, clearly Christians, who do not hold to a dispensational understanding of uh, understanding the scriptures. And so th- what they will do is they will uh, take the promises that were given to a national Israel and they're, they'll spiritualize them for the church. Okay? So um, I- Israel is promised to one day uh, have a dominion um, uh, as a nation um, in in our, our on our earth, and if you're going to spiritualize that, and if the church is the fulfillment of those prophecies, then you have to re envision what those prophecies were meaning in lots of really, in my understanding, extreme ways, right? And and in the understanding of what we profess in in uh, in our doctoral statements. Um, I think there's might be an even uh, another easier way, uh, at least in terms of defining just two words that might help knowing if someone is a dispensationalist. There are people who aren't dispensationalists who believe that Israel and the church are not one and the same. It's not the most common view for people who... Believe that. So, easy rule of thumb. 
Uh, and this I learned from Dr. Bowder. If you find someone who is both a premillennialist and a pre-tribulationalist, you can be almost 100% assured that you've met a dispensationalist. Okay? No one who is a premillennialist and a pre-tribulationalist who believe that Jesus is returning before the millennium uh, happens and believes that Jesus is coming to rapture the church before the tribulation happens. Uh, no one who uh, ascribes to those two things um, can in any coherent way uh, not be a dispensationalist. It, I never uh, never met any such person. Um, it would be really an odd duck. That would be quite the confusing amalgamation of theology. But uh, as we go to Daniel 9, I think what Daniel 9 helps us to see is that a dispensational understanding of the scripture, um, understanding that the promises to Israel will be fulfilled in Israel, um, by Israel, and in the ways that they are uh, professed in the beginning of the fulfillments of those prophecies that have already been fulfilled of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, which is the uh, number three. How does Daniel 9, 24 to 27, that's the blank there, help us understand prophecy better? Um, that uh, is really helpful because how should you read prophetic sections of Scripture? How should you read prophetic sections of Scripture? Dispensationalists are dispensationalists because they insist on this point. Yes, literally. Or in in the normal understanding of of um, normal understanding of human language. Um, how should you read uh, prophetic sections of scripture? Normal understanding of language, which I think is what we see exactly happening in Daniel 9. Now, Daniel 9 is very important for understanding prophecy and very foundational for understanding um, uh, dispensational uh, view of hermeneutics because it's one of the uh, places in scripture, one of few places in scripture where you have some of the prophecy already fulfilled like from our time, it's already fulfilled, and some of it awaiting fulfillment. Okay, so let us then. Um, that would be the short answer for how does Daniel nine twenty four through twenty seven help us understand prophecy better? Uh, because we have some of it fulfilled and some of it unfulfilled, and um, I would encourage you. I would encourage you strongly. Uh, I would encourage you as a dispensationalist. The part that's been fulfilled, think of the part that's going to be fulfilled as being interpreted and understood in the same way as the part that has been fulfilled. Okay? That's, that's a literal interpretation of scripture put into uh, practice as we come to uh, prophecy. But uh, we started looking at particular understanding of interpreting this uh, text and in Daniel 9, Daniel has been reading in verse number 2 some of the prophecies, the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet um, for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, 70 years. And because of those readings, he recognizes the sinfulness of, uh, of his uh, people 
uh, people of Israel. And uh, Daniel is grieved by that. And Daniel goes in prayer to the Lord in verse uh, 3. Um, and following, and what you have is you have just a, a, a beautiful prayer. So verses 3 through 19 is just, if you want another model prayer, a model prayer from the Old Testament, this is a great example of prayer as you go to Daniel 9, 4 through 19. And then God sends the angel Gabriel in response to that prayer, God sends uh, the angel Gabriel to help give some interpretation of what is happening and what is going to happen. And uh, the angel Gabriel uh, comes while I was speaking and praying, verse 20. So the connection to the, the uh, prayer is clear there in the text. And as you continue forward, the uh, the interpretation that's given by the angel Gabriel is the interpretation or, or the explanation that we find in verses 24 through 27. So let's read verses 24 through 27, have the, the whole of the explanation that Gabriel gives in our minds, uh, and then we'll go back and um, I'm going to try to go really fast uh, through the things that we've already been over. I don't want to uh, replow the same ground exactly the same way uh, all over again, and that would take the whole time and we wouldn't get further along. But uh, so hopefully uh, remind you of some of the key things that are happening there and then go forward from where we were um, and understand this particular text uh, two Sundays ago. So uh, would somebody be willing to read for us Daniel 9, Verse 24 through the end of the chapter. Daniel 9, beginning in verse 24. Daniel, appropriate. <laughs> 70, 70 weeks are determined upon the people and upon thy holy city to face the transgression and to make an end of sin and to make re- reconciliation for mercy and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to sow the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth to the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem under the Messiah and the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in the troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall the Messiah be cut off but not for himself and the people of the Prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and to the end of the war desolation is our determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of the abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the, the desolate. Thank you. Um so we have 70 weeks that have been decreed for your people and your city. And we said last time, who is your people in your city? Israel, Jerusalem. It's Daniel's people, uh, their city. Um, to finish the transgression, 
to make an end of sin, to make uh, atonement for iniquity. Um, this finishing a transgression and making an end of sin, um, this is uh, looking forward to uh, when there is a perfect perfection of righteousness. So after the, se- the 70 weeks have been decreed, um, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, uh, there's going to be then everlasting righteousness for the people of Israel. And so is the, is the fullness of this prophecy, has it come to fruition? Do we look to Israel and say, there is everlasting righteousness? Could we say that today? No, we, we certainly could not say that today. Um, so that's one of the really confusing things if you interpret this in some spiritual kind of way. Um, uh, you, you have to do a good bit of g- gymnastics. Um, to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you're to know and discern. So he, uh, he's continuing to explain, Gabriel is to Daniel, that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Um, the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. I didn't mention this last time, but uh, most, I think it's true that most interpreters um, look to the date that I gave you, uh, March 5th, 444 BC, which is the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. Um, and that's recorded in Nehemiah 2, verses 1 through 8. Um, but there are at least a few other, uh, at least three other um, interpretations that are given. And um, while, while it is true that if you ask scholars a question, they'll, uh, if, if they're studying a lot, they'll probably be able to give you different answers. Um, they can't all be true, right? So, uh, this, this particular, um, uh, one is helpful because if you believe that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, if you believe that Messiah the Prince is speaking about Jesus the Messiah, then the beginning of the decree to the, uh, coming of, uh, um, until Messiah the Prince, um, that amount of time has to land somewhere in Jesus' ministry, okay? And at least two of the options for um, for understanding uh, the beginning of this decree, the giving of this decree, uh, they don't uh, land in, in Jesus' lifetime. Um, this one, if it's May 5th, 444 B.C., um, until the Messiah the Prince, the decree being May 5th, 444 BC, until Messiah the Prince will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So that is 62, 7, 69. So uh, I think uh, the King James has it uh, in terms of other language, but the uh, same point there. And then it will be built again. Uh, what is going to be built again? It will be built again. It's clear there, right? In the yeah, it's clear in the text. Jerusalem is going to be uh, built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Um, and this 
Yeah, this is another reason why the March 5th, 444 BC um, date is really, um, really uh, um, desirable to understand that that's correct date because um, when you read about the things that happened after Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8, uh, what do you find in terms of the uh, uh, the problems that the people who were rebuilding the wall had? Well, you find serious opposition uh, and, and such in Nehemiah. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And this is about the, the place where we had um, where we had uh, stopped off in terms of some uh, intensive looking at this uh, this text. So, uh, after the sixty two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And I did forget to remind us of one thing: we've been talking about weeks, and the last time that we had looked at this word weeks. We made it clear that this in the Hebrew is what? Sevens, groups of sevens, groups of sevens. So the question is, what kind of groups of seven? Seven minutes, uh, seven groups of seven minutes, seven groups of seven months, seven groups of seven years. Yeah, so here in this context, it's seven years. So the weeks are, are speaking in terms of uh, seven groups of seven. Um, seven and the 62, so then 69 weeks, uh, 69 groups of seven years. Um, then you have, uh, the, uh, easy ability to do your math, right? Uh, seven times 70, 490 minus seven, 483 years. Uh, so if you go from March 5th, 444 BC, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, and you go forward the 483 years, what particular date do you come to? Now, it's interesting that uh, some of you know uh, Bookman, uh, Dr. Bookman. Dr. Bookman was um, a student at Dallas. Uh, he studied under uh, Harold Honer. Um, he, uh, as a student of Harold Honer, um, uh, took up a study of the life of Christ, understanding Christ's life. Uh, he's a New Testament, uh, New Testament professor. And uh, at one point, uh, Bookman asked Honer if anyone had calculated the date, if anyone had calculated forward from March 5th, 440 BC, uh, 444 BC forward the uh, 483 years. And uh, Honer had said that he didn't know of that having happened. And so he wanted to go and do that. And now the main, the main book that Honer is known for, Chronological Aspects in the Life of Christ, is the name of his book. It's all about dates in the life of Christ. Um, the main book that uh, he's known for, Honer is known for, is, now includes the, the results of this calculation. Um, and the result of the calculation is March 30th, 33 AD. Now, uh, I mentioned last time, uh, there are a number of, uh, of, uh, of, um, date questions that I'm not at all a scholar in. Um, 
and probably most of you are, we could, we could do just like we could, uh, use, uh, given our knowledge of math and given our knowledge of our calendar, uh, we could figure out when a leap year is happening and we could figure out the amount of time that needs to be added, the amount of minutes uh, on certain leap years uh, or seconds, uh, we could do that. But uh, typically, we don't uh, we don't uh, find it important to uh, figure that out ourselves. Anybody ever calculated? Uh, yeah, I've never done that. Um, somebody has. Nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm happy to just have a calendar that has uh, the the extra day in February, but. Um, uh, the, the understanding of, the understanding of, uh, a year that the Jews have is different than our, uh, our calendar. So as you come to our calendar and you look to the Gregorian calendar, we measure years in terms of the amount of time it takes the sun to go around, or the earth to go around the sun. Okay? Uh, that's how we measure a year, whereas the Jews measure years uh, in in terms of lunar months. Okay, and so you have uh, a number of lunar months, and that's a year. Well, because lunar months are shorter, then every so often the Jews would add in. And I, I know that I mentioned this before, but I just want to remind us that there's difference between our calendar and their calendar. Every few years, the Jews would add in a whole month. Okay. To make up the the loss the the loss of time to get back on track for so the spring always happens in the spring uh, and, and such. Um, now I I am not at all a scholar in those calculations and I trust others uh, who are in this case uh, trusting to uh, uh, um, Bookman and Honer and, and the like. But uh, thirty March thirty three A.D. If you if you account for the differences between our calendar and their calendar, and then do the do the uh, do the uh, calculation, thirty March thirty three A.D. comes to within a day of any guesses as to the Sunday. This is assuming other things about when Jesus is living, um, but a very very common. Uh, understanding of when Jesus died is that he died in the beginning of April in 33 AD. And, uh, this, uh, this date, March, uh, 30th, 33 AD would, if, if those calculations are correct, and if the March 5th, 444 BC date is the, the correct one for the starting time of those, uh, that time frame, um, would happen within a day of Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Now, why is Palm Sunday? I don't want to just be telling you all kinds of things. Why is Palm Sunday significant in Christ's life? What is the theological big picture event that Jesus is doing when he... Uh, enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Paul. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Yes, exactly. So Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah. 
Before that time, when had Jesus made it clear that he was the Messiah? Arguably, he hadn't. He hints at it. He, he makes implications in that direction. But when he rides in uh, on that Sunday, uh, he's making it clear, I'm presenting myself as the Messiah. Uh, you have the account when uh, Jesus reads uh, the scripture reading uh, in the synagogue, and he reads a, a portion of it, and then he sits down. And it's, it's clear the implication is, this is who I am. But it's merely implication. When Jesus rides in on the donkey and when the, uh, when the people understand that this is, uh, him, uh, understanding himself in terms of these Old Testament prophecies, he's presenting himself to the Jews as the Messiah. And this then is, uh, the time frame from the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. That is seven weeks and 62 weeks, the um, 483 years. The point that I had drawn out, even though we didn't uh, get this far along last uh, two weeks ago, the point that I had drawn out is that clearly the beginning of this fulfillment of the prophecy is literal. Literal. It's not an amorphous amount of time. It's not a, a let's get our springs out and stretch the date or compress the date however we want. Okay, uh, the the beginning of this prophecy is clearly literal. So my encouragement to you, as I'd already mentioned, understand the end of the prophecy, the, the part of the prophecy that's not yet happened. Uh, understand that as uh, literal. Um. Which takes us then to uh, verse, where were we? Uh, Verse 26. Um, So, then after the 62 weeks, um, the Messiah, uh, and this is the 62 weeks plus the the seven, as is made clear in the previous verse. um, The Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Um. The Messiah being cut off, this is language for uh, Jesus' crucifixion. Um, Cut off was language for death. Uh, Cut off was language for judgment and damnation in in the Old Testament. And so Jesus uh, endures our judgment, endures our um, penalties for sin. Uh, He is cut off. Now, uh, depending how you understand uh, when Jesus died, uh, he died after Palm Sunday, either on Wednesday, um, Thursday, or Friday. Right? There's different different understandings about what what that is. Uh, my my understanding is that it was on Friday. Your understanding might be different, um, but um, it's interesting that uh, that it doesn't say in the text that the Messiah Messiah the Prince. Um, uh, sorry, Messiah. Um, Messiah, who's previously been uh, named as Messiah the Prince in verse 25. Messiah in verse 26. It doesn't say that he'll be cut off 
during the 70th week. Rather, it says after, understanding the the point of the text here, after the 69 weeks, the 62 and the 7. Okay, after that amount of time, then Jesus will be cut off. And it's not, it's not, uh, it's not a very much of a stretch of imagination to think that after, uh, Palm Sunday, you wait a few days and what happens then? Our Savior, the Messiah, is crucified. After 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now, in what sense does, uh, does the king who, who proclaimed himself to his people, in what sense does he have nothing? Yep, the kingdom was not established. He comes in and, and presents himself to the people as their Messiah, and they reject. They not only reject, but he is crucified. Okay. Um, one day, uh, he will have uh, the completion of all that's been decreed, but that's uh, the end of verse 27. So let us keep marching um, through the text. Be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now there is a important question about uh, who the prince is. If this is the same group um, that is uh, that is mentioned in, um, if the prince is the same person as the Messiah, because uh, earlier in verse twenty-five it said Messiah the prince. So is this the same prince? Now, if you're reading a, a translation that capitalizes references to deity, then you have a, a clue. Um, is the word prince, now this might not be an accurate clue, right? But it's a clue. It's the understanding of interpreters. Um, for those of you who are reading uh, modern translations that do the capitalization, is the word prince in verse 26 capitalized? So verse 26, Paul, verse 26, the word prince. So then after 62 days, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come. Okay, so there it's not capitalized. Whereas if you go back in verse 25, Messiah, the prince, is that capitalized? That's capitalized. So at least the New American Standard interpreters, they're understanding that these are two different princes. So the question then is, uh, who is the prince? Who is the prince? Well, let us understand what the prince is going to do. The prince uh, who is to who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, uh, before we answer the question historically, who destroyed the city and the sanctuary? Um, let us uh, note that, um, oh no, I, I'm, I'm thinking forward, not backwards, sorry. Uh, let me not confuse us. Uh, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Uh, who is it that destroyed the, what city and what sanctuary? Obviously, Jerusalem and the temple, okay? Who is it that destroyed Jerusalem and the temple? Rome, or in particular, Titus, 
Titus is the one who came in 70 AD and destroyed the uh, the city and the sanctuary. This is all after the 62 weeks plus seven, uh, after the, that time frame. And it uh, its end will come with a flood. Even to an end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And here is the uh, coming of the end uh, and the desolations uh, are going to come even upon um, who would we be guessing in this uh, in this context? One of two possibilities here. The Antichrist. Okay, so if the if uh, Titus is a, a Roman ruler who is uh, who is established in his historicity that, as we understand it, in destroying the city and the sanctuary, the further uh, the further um, I, uh, I don't want to use the word incarnations, but uh, the the further. Uh, rulers of the, this world's uh, empire who uh, bring about uh, desolations, uh, they will come and will bring about that desolation, the Antichrist. Um, uh, its end will come, um, so his end will come uh, in that understanding. Uh, even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. So we're we're talking about and then in this uh, understanding, far end times, and uh, from our perspective, uh, this is no longer history, no longer something that's already happened. But now we're talking, we're talking future things that haven't happened. Okay, and he will make. Uh, who is this referring back to? Probably, if we go back, it's referring to the prince. Of the people who are going to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Now we know, we know, um, who one party in the covenant is, uh, the many. Who would the many be in this context? The Jews. Yep, they're they're the ones who uh, this whole uh, conversation had been uh, pointing to at the beginning of this explanation. So the Jews are going to have a covenant made with them, and that covenant is going to be made uh, between them, the many, and he. He will make a firm covenant. Who is the he? Again? Antichrist. Antichrist. Okay? So are are we tracking? Uh, This isn't an easy text, but if you take time to think through it, you can understand it. The the prince who destroyed uh, Jerusalem and the temple, he will one day uh, establish a covenant with the people of Israel, and that prince uh, is going to be some version of the the ruler of of. Uh, we would think of the rule of Rome in particular, or the world world powers set in opposition to uh, our God. Uh, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Um, 
One week. Now, if week has been previously years, uh, uh, as we're looking at the, the time frame that's under consideration, the period of count, counting of sevens, uh, groups of sevens, uh, then how long is one week? Seven years. One group of seven years is seven years. So there will be a time of destruction and desolation. There will be a time of seven years when there will be a covenant. But in the middle of the week, um, now half of seven years in the middle of the week would be uh, the young people should answer, right? Uh, uh, push along their math skills. Half of seven is three and a half. Half of seven is three and a half. Three and a half plus three and a half equals seven. Does I even got that? Yeah, very good. Uh, in the middle of the week, he, that is Antichrist, uh, the one who made the covenant with, with the Jews, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. Uh, what is going to happen in the middle of the week? The Antichrist is going to break the covenant. He's going to break the covenant. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction. One that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And so there is going to be one who will bring about an end to this, uh, uh, an end to this abomination. And if we're thinking in terms of, uh, of texts that we know elsewhere, um, we're thinking not anymore of the prince who is a prince of a Roman empire, but a prince who is of much greater and higher esteem. Our savior is going to come in and he is going to bring about the end of that seven year tribulation period. Now, if you understand verse number 25, if you understand verse 25 and the beginning of verse 26 to be speaking in literal terms, in terms of weeks of years, then it makes all the sense in the world, my estimation of sense and logic, it makes all the sense in the world to understand that the things which happen after that would also be weeks of years. So how do we, how do we explain the fact that, uh, and actually to be, to be more precise, after the 69 weeks, there's only one week left for the 70 weeks. Okay. So not weeks, but weeks singular. Okay. But how do you explain that in, uh, somewhere around March 30th, 33 AD, um, the, the prince uh, uh, the prince, the Messiah is cut off. Sorry, I shouldn't use the word prince uh, since the text is Messiah. The Messiah will be cut off. And now we're uh, some 2,000 years later and we don't have the end of the uh, the 70th week. How do you explain that? Isn't it the times, the times of the Gentiles in the middle? Or am I remembering wrong? You're remembering correctly. Yeah. How would you explain that with a normal understanding of the wording of the Bible from this text? 
So there's a gap. There's 69 uh, weeks, and then um, and then the Messiah is cut off uh, after the the 69 weeks. The Messiah is cut off. Then there's a gap, and then there's the one week where the Antichrist will make a a treaty covenant with the people of Israel. How do you explain that there's this big interim and that all didn't happen right in consecutive order? Can't explain it. Okay, I think there's, there's wording in the text that helps us. Go back to verse 26 in the very beginning. Is the scriptures, are, are the scriptures promising that these 70 weeks will be consecutive? No. And what, what word gives you the clue that there might be a not consecutive? After. Exactly. After the, the 62 weeks and, and, and the seven from the uh, verse before. After the 69 weeks, then there will be a time when the uh, the Antichrist establishes his covenant. Um, uh, let us, uh, oh my, time is flying. Uh, let us be steadfast. My encouragement to you as readers of the scriptures, let us be steadfast in um, insisting on a normal interpretation of, of human language. Um, uh, such is, uh, such is, uh, what we find uh, here in Daniel 7, uh, important dates, the only other one that I was going to give you. Uh, no, I already mentioned them both. So important dates is number four. And I mentioned March 5th, 444 BC, the beginning of the uh, 69 weeks and March 3rd, 33 AD, the end of the 69 weeks. I'm not around to uh, help your mind be boggled by math uh, in, in the next two weeks. Um, but hopefully, uh, laughing matter aside, uh, uh, given, given some of our inclinations towards math or not, um, hopefully it is clear, even as we look to this text, God has given normal literal prophecy, uh, promises, and they will be fulfilled in normal literal ways. Um, let us pray. Lord, our faith rests in you, and because our faith rests in you, we trust in your words as you have spoken them. We pray that we might continue in that trust in Christ's name. Amen.